Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. Sweating my fucking ass off in a shack in Hawaii is me, Joe, and freshly nearly being arrested by the military police and for uh, JBLM. Nick, <laughs> yeah, we're doing great this week, here. man. I, I gotta say, this has been a, a banner week for both of us. Yeah, it's honestly the, the probably the best thing that's happened to me this whole month. Other than that, it was pretty uneventful until that happened. <laughs> so you know what? I'll take it. I I'm normally not this angry and overheated, but my landlord monitors my electrical usage, and she sent me a very kindly worded email from the mainland that said i noticed you're using a lot of electricity joseph and i said yes i also happen to notice it's over 100 degrees here for the last six days in a row <laughs> and this motherfucker isn't insulated and i have a single window unit of which i am is the little engine that could except it's keeping me alive from fucking heat stroking in the middle of the day <sighs> so now it's i have like to you're trying to live yeah fuck me right for trying to live <laughs> uh for for yeah like and so she's like if you could just please turn it off whenever you leave which like okay but that's through like the hottest part of the day (laughs) so i come back in so for instance say i come into the shack to record uh on our on our agreed upon recording time it's like 98 degrees in here oh god (laughs) that sounds so bad it's like oh you must sit while you're just on the toilet taking a poo you got to be sweating. That's those are the worst poos. You know, it's great. I trained in Afghanistan for years to be able to be able to sweat my ass off at a small room while taking a dump, and I'm glad that it's it's come back full circle in 2020 where I can do it again. <laughs> so How glad. How prepared did that make you for this? I've been training my whole life. Uh, I'm I'm real glad I can I can just sweat continuously, forever be moist. <laughs> um it's like, you know what? I really don't like the sauna, but uh now I live in one. Yeah. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, living in a sauna in Hawaii is actually very uh, expensive, while living in a sauna in Afghanistan was free. Um, <laughs> now, we're doing something today that um, we're for the next several weeks. I'm going to say next five weeks. Mark it on the calendar. Five. I'm going five. Doing it. We're doing a series. Uh, it's been a series that has been pitched to us multiple times, um, and I've been hesitant to cover it. Mostly because it's not a war that Western scholars like to pay attention to. Uh, it was hard for me to find good resources, especially because one of the most fundamental facts of this war is just Western racism. So when you there's a lot of things that you read that are very, very stilted and like to gloss over the fact of how exactly Russia and Japan ended up fighting what amounted to be a dry run of World War One before Ooh. World War One. And that is the okay. Russo Japanese War. We're doing it. Uh, Let's do it. So, this is our first post-corona series, uh, or inter-corona series, since this is just how we live forever now. Um, we accepted it. It's what's happening. Um, you know, do you know much about this war? A lot of people don't. They no, know. They know. I don't of, know like, anything about it. I know of the war, just don't know anything about it. There's almost two things that everybody knows about this war. That is the Battle of Tsushima, and the 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 voyage of the damned of the of the imperial russian second pacific squadron and Uh-oh. virtually nothing else um and those are two things we will absolutely cover in episode three and i cannot wait to get to that point 
What but episode are we on right now? This is episode one, Nick. Fuck. Uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's, good, it's good to have you here. God damn it. <laughs> um, Can we get a guest to fill in for me on the first episode and second? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to need you to gloss over it, yada, 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 <laughs> by the way, through all this war. Um, now, to get to the point of everybody's favorite topic, we do have to talk about some weird imperialist geopolitics of the late 18 and 1900s. Nick, I know that's your favorite. I know it's nobody's mm. favorite, uh, <laughs> unless your your brain is as severely broken as mine is. Um, so the root cause of this war, like many other wars that we've ever covered, um, is I, I believe we have a, a, a running podcast rule list. Uh, obviously, we have our, our our war movie rule list, which is uh, the bonus episode territory. Oh, yep. And then we have our regular episode rule, rule list. And that is almost every war, World War One and before then. It boils down to two inbred dudes beefing over turf. And that's that, the rule that we're following here. Absolutely. Um, oh, wow. So what it comes down to is the Russian czar, Nicholas II, who I will just call Nicholas to make things easier. Um, don't be proud that your namesake's starring in this. He's the dumbest motherfucker that we have covered, I think. I mean, I got to have something. And the Japanese emperor uh, had imperial ambitions over the greater Manchuria area. As the two powers grew in strength and size, they began to eventually seek out uh, the same land and resources as their spheres of influence kind of ran into one another. Japan had become rapidly imperialist and a militarist power uh, in the region uh, really quickly over the course of just a few decades backed by a populace that clamored for war and a tough form of foreign policy. Now that sounds weird. Is that like, I'm put, I, I don't mean to say I'm putting the blame for all this. I'm like Japanese people. Uh, but they did have a very strange form of social Darwinism. That is like uh, the survival of the fittest, but as societies, like I'm not saying like huh. the Japanese were this way towards one another, but that they wanted the Japanese foreign policy to, encompass social darwinism like if japan can beat you then japan should beat you and we should take you over uh oh, wow yeah um that's definitely that, why they kicked me out of the bar yeah the, yeah we kicked you out of the bar because we could and now also we own your garage um damn it <laughs> yeah and this had become incredibly popular uh within the, the japanese populace and government by the 1800s uh we're gonna gloss over a lot of the the rebellions and the, the the restorations that led to that moment, because I'm not going to go into that. Uh, that's a chaos ruin of internal politics. And I don't want to piss off people that know way more about that than I do. I did not research the, the Meiji restoration. Um, this did the normal thing uh, that it does. And it spilled into national policy, which is even worse. Remember the, the common Japanese person was taxed incredibly heavily, so the Japanese government could afford this rapid military progress. Because within only a couple of decades, they went from really not having a central military to having like full armored navies and like a normal like uh, uh, an army that you would well, recognize anywhere in Europe. Yeah, they had they went from Tom having Cruise. nothing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, if for for the more uh, historical background on all of this. Watch the last thing. It's it's fact. Uh, I don't care. Um, but you know, in order to do that, they took a lot of debts from foreign governments, especially the British and the French. But they also taxed the living shit out of their people. Uh, but in exchange for those rising taxes, they demanded tangible evidence that all of this is worthwhile. Like, say, an overseas empire. You know, America. 
We do the same thing, <laughs> except we don't call it empire. We call it national security. Nice. Uh, when people thought the government was not aggressive enough overseas, there would be protests in the streets against what they saw as weakness. And like, also, people would occasionally assassinate political figures for being cowards. In Japan? Yes. Oh. Yeah, like they would be like, wow, we didn't persecute the Chinese enough. We're going to take to the streets. <laughs> A- absolutely wild shit. Yeah. Um, Japanese historian Masao Murayama said, quote, just as Japan was subject to pressure from the great powers, so she would apply those pressures to still weaker countries. A clear case of transfer psychology. In this regard, it is significant that ever since the Meiji period, demands for a tough foreign policy have come from the common people. That is, from those that are receiving end of oppression at home. So, like, we get that you're taxing the dog shit out of us and like, you know, they have secret police and you're oppressing us, but like, we want to do that to other people too to make us feel better. That makes sense. That's something uh, yeah. I can get behind that. Why not? Let's do it. I mean, I would, I would rather not have the oppression at home or the overseas empire, but clearly I'm American. I don't get either one of those <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, Russia, on the other hand, had slowly been inching east ever since the 16th century when Ivan the Terrible began giving bedroom eyes to the Siberian Far East. By Earth, you say farties? The Far East. <laughs> oh, I heard farties. I was like, huh, that's a, that's a weird name I, they call them. It's a Siberian Arby's. It's disgusting and just full of, it's full of cheddar cheese. Uh don't look into that too much. By the early 1900s, they had a vast empire that would stretch from Poland to Vladivostok. So, huge. Eventually, the two would see each other as prime rivals in the region, which occasionally spark into damn near war at the time as the Japanese shogunate into the early mid-1800s when the Russians popped into the Japanese territories like Hokkaido and Tsushima and kind of just let mu- try to muscle their way into Japan uh, and allow them to anchor there. Kind of like what we did. Like, we forced Japan to open by gunfire. Russia tried to do the same thing, but were worse at it, which is a common theme in this podcast, I know. Um, But a lot of time had passed, and Japan became stronger. They fought China in the first Sino-Japanese War, a massive sprawling conflict that started because Japan was attempting to leverage their power in Korea into a proxy war to get their puppet on the throne of like, the, the Kingdom of Korea. By the end of the war, Japan signed the Treaty of... Uh, Shimonoseki, which forced China to cede the Liaodong Peninsula and the island of Taiwan to Japan. So it's a pretty big win for, you know, Japan fighting a country as big as China, which obviously this would be the last time that's ever happened. And certainly there wasn't a second one. Never see that again. Thankfully, Japan would not uh, persecute their neighbors ever again. Uh, spoiler alert, in case nobody paid attention to all of the 1940s. Uh, oh, God. The main draw of it was Liaodong's main port of Port Arthur, a year-round warm water port that they could use to vastly expand their naval, naval power within the region. This pissed off Russia, mostly because they wanted a year-round warm water port. Uh, Who doesn't? I, I didn't think this is such a big deal, but then I realized that, like, Everything's still coal-powered at the t- at the time, so like just sending a fleet, say, around the world to flex on somebody is a really hard thing to do. Which, by the way, that happens in episode three. Uh, doesn't go well. Uh, if you fall in the water, it's warm. Who doesn't want that? It's 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 refreshing, you know. Have <laughs> have a have a schwitz in the fucking bay. Um, 
But if they held that particular port, Port Arthur, they'd be able to rapidly expand its sphere of influence into the region and, you know, bully Japan. So Russia went to its buddies in France and Germany to tell them that they needed to help Russia kick the Japanese out of Port Arthur. The three European powers threatened military force if Japan did not give the port back to China. Japan knew they really had no chance of fighting three European powers at once. Uh, you know, maybe a bit of evidence or advice they should have taken thirty years from now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they agreed to leave. They agreed to leave. Almost so they Im- shit all over the port. Yeah, they they probably just like drew dicks on everything before they left. <laughs> yeah. Uh, almost immediately afterwards, Russia just happened to strike a rental deal with the Chinese government to rent them Port Arthur right back to them, right after they just forced the Japanese to leave. Really? <laughs> yes. Huh. Uh, th- this to the surprise of, I assume, only Russia really fucking pissed off Japan. Um, not just the government, but the people as well. This began what is known as the Gaishin Shotan movement, which translates to, and this is a very Japanese saying, quote, persevering through the hardship for the sake of revenge. <laughs> oh, fuck that. Yeah. Um, which took the previous military revolution going on with Japan and cranked the dial to 11, so they would never be embarrassed by another European imperial power again, at least not until 1945. Never again. And you really have to ask, why was Russia, and seemingly the rest of Europe, teaming up to be dicks against Japan? It should shock absolutely no one when I say it was just for good old-fashioned European racism. Okay. Okay, I kind of figured that too. So, I'm going to say some fucked up shit that that absolutely are racial slurs, but I'm going to be quoting primary documents. I'm not just going to say these things to say them. All willy-nilly. Yeah, um, and I, I feel like the reason why I do that is so you could understand how disgusting this is um, and how your history leaves a lot of this out. Um, so this is an era we now, known, now know as the Yellow Peril. Uh, creative name, I know. Nobody can really claim to be the originators of this racist fever dream of propaganda and war, But most of the blame seems to fall on who else but Germany. Uh, Now, this is Imperial Germany, so hold back on the Nazi jokes. (laughs) Uh, They cranked out incredibly racist propaganda telling any European power that would listen that it was only a matter of time before Japan and China teamed up and, quote, the yellow race launched a war against the white race of Europe. God, that checks out for Germany. Right? It's it's a trend. (laughs) It's, It's a trend. Um, obviously this is incredibly ridiculous. Obviously we're looking back at like hindsight's 2020, clearly Japan and China are never going to fucking team up. They literally still hate each other in the year of 2020. Uh, but yeah, uh, cause well, Japan hates fucking everybody and everybody hates Japan for a very good reason. <laughs> oh, I kind of like Japan. Well, I mean, the- they never the enslaved they our out. people and fucking bombed us with the plague. And then like, hmm and said that nothing ever happened. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the, the politics of the region are, uh, are fraught at best. Um, and through the histories of Japan and China and Korea, for that matter, they have literally been fighting each other constantly. Uh, and normally to this extent that other countries really didn't care because they saw as two subhuman races smacking one another around. So that really only changed recently. Um, 
it, it was uh, the only real treaties ever signed between China, Japan, and Korea were at the barrel of a Japanese gun until after World War II. So the idea that they're going to become like best buds and then I don't know, I don't somehow invade through Russia or something is ridiculous. But nobody ever accused a racist of being intelligent, and nobody ever accused Kaiser Wilhelm to be fucking smart either. So you know, whatever. Now, if you're wondering what the hell happened and how something like this, that something like the Germans were pushing, actually had an effect on Imperial Russia, well, I get some uh, some of the in, big inbred energy coming because both the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas, and the Kaiser of Germany, Wilhelm, were cousins, um, and they would oh. they would exchange friendly letters calling each other Nikki and Willie. This continued all the way until World War One, when their people were killing each other by the millions. By the way, they're they're not great people. Oh, even into World War One, they were. Sending correspondence? Oh, yeah. There's a whole chain of letters um, that pretty much shows that both of them were largely powerless to control their giant militaries, like to the point that they were calling each other cutesy nicknames and talking about how they didn't want to fight one another. But, you know, we already called up all of our reserves, so it's too late to turn back now. Oh, okay. I see. Oh. It just speaks of two incredibly uh, uh, fucking elevated people that have no idea what they were doing and no idea of the realities of war and a lot of people say well who could have known that world war one would have been that bad we're literally talking about why they should have known and they completely fucking ignore it uh but yeah uh, that, that's that's a time for that's a that's a different conversation for a different series uh our our culminating 100 part series on world war one <laughs> oh god uh, anyway, it will release every six months one episode until my brain finally flashes out and i die uh, <laughs> Kaiser I think Dan Carlin would just absorb you. <laughs> Dan Carlin would take my energy like a spirit bomb. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm beat this racist fear drum uh, directly in his cousin, the Tsar's face, uh, who history has repeatedly shown that the Tsar is a fucking idiot and very easily manipulated by just about everybody. Uh, Wilhelm wrote letters to his cousin telling him that, quote, he was the savior of the white race. For checking the imperial ambitions of the Japanese. This led to a geopolitical strategy of constantly attempting to check Japanese expansion wherever it popped up, which led to the powers of Europe flexing on lone Japan and kicking out of Port Arthur. All these things tracked together. It also led to an intense imperial ambition all over China as each Western power slowly ate away at the edges of the country and exploited the Chinese people. This eventually exploded in what became known as the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, have you ever heard about this? I know that one. It's definitely going to be a series we talk about because it's crazy. We're only going to talk about it as far as how the fuck all these countries got involved in it. But, yeah. That is when the awesomely named Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fists took it upon themselves to purge all Western what? and Christian influence from China. Normally through the mass murder of white people and Chinese Christians. It's a long name, and, but it's a good name. And also the murder of Western-educated Chinese people. What I'm saying, it, it, it was a battle axe on a scalpel, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an, it's an absolute awesome name. But because they at the very beginning, they lacked weapons, and they focused on hand-to-hand combat, uh, combat and like outright martial arts, like just straight up squaring up with people, the right. Westerners called the boxers, hence how the name gets stuck. I just thought they always fought in Fruit of the Loom. Yeah, yeah. So they're... No support either. That's that's the worst part about that. No, um, none at all. That's why I wear a uh, Calvin Klein. <laughs> uh, Calvin Klein, the the official 
boxer of the uh, I can't do that. I'm pretty <laughs> Uh, eventually, the boxers were let into Peking and besieged the foreign legations that symbolize Western encroachment into their country. Uh, a lot of this is because that the uh, the Qing dynasty also kind of wanted the Westerners out, so they openly but not openly fought side by side with the boxers in probably what is the least is it's the worst ever example of plausible deniability that I think I've ever seen in history. <laughs> Now, this is a direct threat to Western control of many aspects of Chinese society. Uh, and, like, it was effectively all of their foot their footholds in China were being threatened by the boxers. So all of these imperialist powers got together and formed what became known as the Eight Nation Alliance uh, to quickly rush soldiers into the fray and turn back boxers. This includes, like, uh, everyone through... Western Europe, uh, the United States, so many countries were involved in this. Um, it sounds like the Legion of Doom. It kind of is if you're China. I guess we'd call that the Coalition of the Willing now. But uh, oh, yes. This, yes. Is, this is one of those moments in history that showed that imperialism and racism can be set aside when the exploited rise up. Kind of showing the entire thing as a facade, I guess. Uh, because despite Germany vomiting horrible racist bullshit about the Japanese, the Russians buying it and quickly turning that into policy, <laughs> the rest of the world also doing their own versions of the Yellow Peril at various levels of severity, none of them batted an eye when Japan signed onto the alliance uh, and sent in more troops than anybody else into the Boxer Rebellion. Now, they didn't accidentally vomit. I feel like they fucking were sticking their finger down their throat type vomiting oh for sure uh it, it's it's one of those vomits like it, you know when you have your friend that's really drunk and he insists if you puke you'll feel better oh the old, old, the old rally yeah, yeah yeah i used to do those doesn't work no because it turns out vomiting kind of makes you die a little huh despite becoming sudden if temporary allies with the japanese that absolutely did not mean germany wouldn't be the most racist they possibly fucking could oh so before German troops deployed to uh, China, Kaiser Wilhelm extolled his men to act like the Huns, killing as many people as they could. So this is a direct quote from his, uh, I, I think they call it the, the, the savage speech or something like that. Uh, quote, when you come before the enemy, you must defeat them. Pardon will not be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls to your hands will fall to your sword. Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under King Attila made a name for themselves with such ferocity, which Ooh. tradition still recalls, so may the name of Germany become known in China in such a way that no Chinaman will ever dare look at German in the eye, even with a squint. <laughs> we need to tone Yikes. it down a little bit. So this was so unhinged that his own foreign minister censored the speech before publication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even like a German minister, uh, foreign minister is like, whoa, look, we might be racist, but we're still Germany. <laughs> uh, the, the Kaiser ordered Field Marshal Alfred von Waldersee, uh, the German expeditionary commander, to, quote, behave barbarously. Now, uh, Imperial powers rejected to this, like, vehemently, like, how dare you? That goes against their Western sensibilities. But then they all gladly took part in the sack of Peking, raping and murdering as many people as they possibly could get their hands on. Meanwhile, we all still judge Japan for doing the same thing without confronting our own history. Now, Japan obviously wanted to protect their interest in China, but they also thought throwing their lot with the West 
would protect them from the same kind of bullshit that cost them uh, Port Arthur not that long ago. So, like, they figured, like, well, I'll be part of, like, the cool kids Imperial Club, so they won't bully me anymore. No, you'll always get bullied, turns out. It turns out to be, like, that idea kind of makes sense, but not really. Yeah, it turns out when all of it is based on racism, if you're the Asian guy in the club, like, you're never going to be allowed into the cool kids club. Yeah, fact. They were hoping that when the smoke cleared, they would be the dominant power in the area and therefore kind of be able to fuck the West right back. So they deployed 20,000 men and 18 warships, by far the most of anybody in the alliance. Furthermore, once on the ground, Japan was constantly on the attack, throwing themselves in the battle more frequently and more ferociously than any other country in the alliance. To the point that their Western counterparts thought the Japanese were insane, showing no fear in the face of enemy fire and refusing to withdraw from battle regardless of their losses until they won. Fuck. It, it, it turns out Russia could just kind of get a preview of what they, what they would be sitting through. <laughs> now, the second most troops supplied to the alliance was Russia. They sent around 12,000, but with vastly different goals than the Japanese. The Russians just invaded Manchuria. In, a, in an area long sought after by Japan, the Russians told anybody who would listen that they was, would withdraw as soon as the boxers were defeated. But instead, they uh, once that was all over, they poured in a hundred thousand troops, and they made a a tentative date for withdrawal that they had no intention on in agreeing with. Sounds familiar. Again, the Japanese were furious, but they had little power to kick out the Russians militarily, so they offered full uncontested control over the area in exchange for northern Korea. Japan also signed the Anglo-Japanese alliance with Britain in 1902. That meant if any country tossed its lot in with Russia, in the event that the two finally decided to fight, Britain would be forced to join the war on the side of Japan. Jesus Christ. This sounds like a really (laughs) confusing, intertwining alliance. That's exactly what led to World War I. Uh, So, yeah. But that alliance meant that Japan knew everyone else would leave them alone should Russia and them go at it. So at least they would be one-on-one. At least that is what Japan assumed. After the alliance was signed, Wilhelm continued sending letters to his cousin, encouraging, to, encouraging him to expand east, telling them that he had, quote, been chosen by God himself to defend Europe from the Asian threat. Because <laughs> who will? Yeah. God himself, yeah. yeah. God looked down and saw fucking <laughs> czarist Russia like, ah, yes, my chosen people. You know, like... I, I'm I'm putting a lot of this on on Kaiser Wilhelm, and I don't mean to. Besides the fact that he's like a real bastard and a baby armed bitch, but like it, it was, it's interesting watching him influence Russia so easily, like to the point that like all of uh, Tsar Nicholas's advisors like this is a really bad idea, and like no, but cousin Willie says it'll be fine. <laughs> like you stupid motherfucker, he is using you. <gasps> Willie would never. He sounds like he's in a toxic relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a somehow emotionally abusive relationship with the, with the fucking Kaiser of Germany. The Kaiser sent so many letters to St. Petersburg about all of this that the Tsar was pretty much convinced, um, and, and he attempted to convince everyone in the Russian government that the Germans would totally risk a world war to help Russia fight Japan. Like, that's what it sounded like. Because, like, like, Germany cannot wait to stand side by side and stem the tide of the yellow people. But it's like, Germany was, like, giving, I mean, to be fair, Germany was, like, giving them a lot of stuff. But nowhere did they ever actually agree to send troops or, or fight with them. It was all bullshit rhetoric by the Kaiser. 
but it turns out. Oh, so they didn't support it. No. Um, oh, no. Wow. This possible reassurance of German military help was something that the Tsar needed. As was the 1900s, transporting soldiers across the vastness of Russia to the Far East was damn near impossible. And even once the Trans-Siberian Railroad was finished, it wouldn't be easy and would take weeks. Because of that, the entire Russian Far East military ability in, in Manchuria was limited and pretty much impossible to reinforce. Despite the fact that they were cousins and the Tsar trusted him, the Kaiser just kept on playing the Tsar. At the time, France and Russia were allied, and France was very unhappy with Russian expansion into the East. The Kaiser hated the idea of France having a strong ally, more so to the east of Germany. Hence, like, if we go to war, if we ever fight France again, because this is Germany we're talking about, they have an ally right. in Russia right behind us. So, like, we'll fight a two-front war. <laughs> Thankfully, that never happened twice. <laughs> so he thought if he nudged Russia into war, it would force the French to break the alliance because they didn't want to fight England. And because Japan was allied with Britain, it would force Russia to turn towards Germany, wherein the Kaiser knew he could play his idiot fucking cousin and do whatever he wanted because that's what he's been doing the whole time. You already know he'll go for it. It had the added benefit of drawing Russia east, away from the Balkans, and relieving tension on Russia and Germany's close ally, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If all this sounds like plays that would also fit right in in World War I, you would be correct. Russia was eventually forced to agree to a timetable to withdraw their forces from Manchuria. But that time passed on April 8th, 1903, with them not doing anything at all. <laughs> no, oh, they, they didn't. didn't. They I only mean, yeah. just they kept reinforcing like... and digging in. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing the old la la la? Yeah, uh, it, it's a lesson that America would learn and go on to perfect into a science. In Japan, not only was their government pissed, but so was their populace. People took to the streets to protest against their own government for getting punked by Russia again. <laughs> the Japanese government sent their minister to St. Petersburg, a guy named Kurino Shichiro, but uh, like, it, his whole thing was to present Japan's objections to uh, Russia's latest political dick move. And via telegram, he outlined the Japanese government's strict objections once again, saying they could totally have Manchuria if Japan could simply have Korea. And they would both be allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted with those two play pieces as much as they wanted. Oh. oh. Russia responded by rejecting everything. And instead laid out their own terms that would force Japan and Russia to allow Korea to be independent. But also, Japan had to withdraw all of their forces from Korea and Russia would do the same. But, remember, Russia's right over the border in Manchuria. It meant Japan would lose even more forfe uh, forfeiting geopolitical power right back to Russia, and Russia would almost certainly just invade Korea. Or right. the people that the, the quote-unquote independent country that they would set up would just be a Russian puppet. Ooh. And this, like, this whole back and forth took a year. Just going constantly like, the Japanese are like, come on guys, we're trying to play ball here. But like it quickly became clear to Japan that Russia had absolutely zero intent on settling their territorial dispute. Like they they were blowing them off in a way that even like diplomatically shooting down someone like there's there's certain norms that you have when it comes to diplomacy that you that you have to visit when it comes even if you're shooting something like this down. Russia was like blowing them off offhandedly, wouldn't meet them in person, would like want to do this all through Telegram. They were just being dicks. Really. So. 
Why then did Russia keep these talks going if they didn't actually care about what Japan was saying? Well, originally the Tsar was actually completely open to some kind of agreement with Japan. He didn't want war, not for any good reason, mind you. He was just worried about internal palace politics more than the specter of throwing thousands of his soldiers in to die, something that I don't think any Tsar has ever lost any sleep over. Like yeah. He was worried that if he made a deal, he would look weak and then allow someone to leverage power against him, maybe depose him. It, it, it's a whole palace thing. It's all dumb. But when he alerted the Kaiser about his plans to make a deal to avoid a war, the Kaiser immediately called him out for being a coward. He called him, quote, you innocent angel. This is the language of innocent angels, not that of a white czar. Oh, gotta throw that in there. And with that, the czar changed his mind and continued to stall and reject everything offered to him against the advice of his advisors, who warned them this would eventually lead to war and Japan would only sit through this for so long. And it would be a war that they'd have an incredibly hard time fighting due to the massive problems that would pop up when they attempted to, you know, prosecute a war on the Far East with no logistics or supply system in place. And he ignored them all. And to this day, nobody's entirely sure why he did. Uh, I mean, maybe because... Maybe he just didn't feel like it. I don't want to... <laughs> yeah. uh, some think it's because he wanted to spark a war against Japan, who they not only saw as a lesser nation, but a lesser race that he routinely described only in racial slurs. So he thought it'd be an easy war that he could use to inflate the Russian sense of patriotism and strengthen the Tsar's hold on power, which had already begun to slip and would fall completely during the revolution. Another is the one that I have kind of explained. Tsar Nicholas was dumb and didn't know that he was being a take advantage of by his, to be completely honest, equally dumb cousin, Kaiser Wilhelm. The only difference between the two is that Kaiser had much better advisors at his disposal, who had only recently played most of Europe like fools and created the German Empire out of nothing in the first place. I mean, at this point, Germany is not is only a couple decades old. And it was right. all through like political maneuvering and also uh, Napoleon's nephew being a fucking idiot. To, that created it. <laughs> Another is that, the, is that the Tsar thought that since they'd been fucking Japan over so many times with virtually no repercussions, that the Japanese were too afraid to fight a war against their much larger neighbor. I mean, to be fair, they were outnumbered by literally tens of millions. Oh, hell yeah. Also, at the time, everyone in Russia believed that the Russian army and navy was superior to anything the Japanese could bring to any possible war. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Tsar did not think that being a chronic asshole to Japan was not enough and was not going to start a war. A good example of this was Russia's economy was absolute dog shit. It's, it's not a, like, if this was a base to start a war on, like, you'd think that, like, we have, you know, a war chest to, like, fund whatever, like, economic damage is going to happen when we, when we conscript most of our working class and send them to, ju- to die in Lyodong <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but, like, the, the, the Russian economy was absolute wreck, as it was through most of the Tsar's rule. Nicholas is never good at running Russia, but by the 1900s, the cracks that had previously only began to show were wide goddamn open. His inability to manage an economy had plunged Russia into an incredible amount of debt. The entire Russian economy was propped up by French and German lending, which would continue through this war and the next. Um, Wow. But none of that should have mattered. Because Nick thought there was never going to be a war, right? Well, 
it turned out that Tsar Nicholas would be wrong about literally every th- single thing I just said. <laughs> Japan knew that their time to act was now. They knew that the Russians had no good way to reinforce their positions. And because they thought very little of the Japanese, they would not be expecting them to make the first move. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to do was hit before the Trans-Siberian Railroad was complete. So even, like, even though it took weeks to get reinforcements to the Far East uh, with that railroad, they knew like, hey, if we hit now, this war could be over before that even matters. Because Russia... Did uh, they? Eh, well, Russia only had about 100,000 troops in the area. And but, so like, that's a pretty small army. Even for the day, uh, even pre World War One, especially for uh, a target for all of Japan's military to focus on. So on February eighth, nineteen o four, Japan declared war on Russia, but in a way that becomes something of a thing for Japan. They formally declared war three hours after the Imperial Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the Russian Far East <laughs> fleet that was stationed at Port Arthur. <laughs> that seems to be a trend. Uh, it, like what they did was uh, the the Russian Navy. So Port Arthur is kind of like a a boat prison. Like it, it's it's defended by huge like mountains on almost every side, um, and has a very very narrow entrance. So it's it's like actually a really easy place to besiege. Um, but they knew that the Russians also knew that hey, if we just sit in the port, they can't come in here. We can fuck their shit up. But also, we can't go out there. They'll fuck our shit up. So yeah. what ja- we're basically yeah, stuck. We, they have us right where they want us. Cool. Uh, so what Japan <laughs> yeah. did is kind of attack with some like tiny torpedo boats, which caused the Russian Navy to flee into the port long enough for the rest of the Japanese fleet to show up and besiege them and, and trap them in. Uh, so that meant like, and this would end up being the death knell for the entire Russian military, is that they couldn't pull that fleet out to like retreat to Vladivostok or even meet the Japanese in open battle. So like they're just sitting at Port Arthur. Oh, that sounds awful. And uh, though to be fair, there's little evidence to suggest that they perfectly timed it that way. Uh, like there's, I don't mean to carry weight for the Japanese war effort of surprise attacks, but it was 1904 and word traveled pretty slowly. But I'm willing to bet that they knew word traveled slowly and did that shit on purpose. So it was a surprise attack. Uh, not saying that there's anything bad about that. I don't really care about the niceties of declaring war. You're killing people at an industrial scale. Who cares about the paperwork involved? <laughs> like that's some like uh, the that's like the 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 government workers from Futurama. Ah, you're technically correct. The best kind of correct. Like you're murdering people with machine guns and cannons. I don't care about the paperwork involved. Like just 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 get on with the killing if you're gonna do it. Um, and the Russian government was completely shocked by all of this because they're fucking stupid i mean like i would be shocked i can't too. believe they attacked us after all that time we took you know poking them with a stick yeah look at all these uh you know rejections we gave them like we're playing hardball Come how, on. how dare they attack us we've only been treating them like shit for 30 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and the czar was left speechless for a few minutes but he, before he flew into like an uncontrollable rage and began throwing things around the room and then pointing, pointing <laughs> at his ministers like one person at a time like, this is your fault. Why didn't you warn me? <laughs> like, sir, we've, we've been doing that for a decade. 
And like, and all of the things that like the the Kaiser had been telling him, like Japan would never attack you. They deserve it. Blah blah blah. This is the. It's like he'd point at like his like minister of the navy or whatever. Like you told me Japan would never attack. He's like, I've that's no, that was your cousin who does not work here. You said they're giant yeah. pussies. And it like all of his advisors warned him that this is going to happen, and it, not that just it was going to happen, but it's going to happen soon. <laughs> and like all of them ignored him, and that is uh, that is when Japan laid siege to Port Arthur, uh, which would be the longest and most costly battle of the Russo-Japanese War, and that is we'll we we'll pick up next week. Well, you you gotta get the warm port. You gotta get the warm water. Uh, so I could see why. Just I, pee in the I, port. I'd spend a few thousand Just men deploy for it. your entire navy to jump into a port and pee in it all at once. It'll be warm. Oh, that would definitely be, be warm, spicy very water. Warm. I don't know. I think uh, Russian sailors piss out cold borscht. And so, <laughs> so from some horrible dinners, it's like ready. all those disgusting, uh, like scurvy from like the like the the old. Uh, ships from history is a uh, as uh, the Russian Navy gets borscht dick, and they don't know how to they, know, they don't know how to cure it. <laughs> yeah, they, they, hey, I gotta see the doc. Hey, doc, uh, I think I got the borscht dick. No, it's terminal. All right, go ahead and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead and uh, piss in this bowl. <laughs> we'll see what we'll see how far along you Takes are. Takes a spoon and tastes it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry, son, you're not gonna make it. Yeah, good borscht. Good borscht, though. So, Nick, that is part one of our Russo-Japanese war series. How are you feeling so far? I like where it's it's, going. I like where it's going. It's going to get marketably worse, and you're going to see, like, that's... I'm going to try not to uh, mention it as often as I have in this first episode. And by that, I mean the borscht dick. But no, um, the comparisons of World War I. Um, They're everywhere, and uh, there's... Through all of this war, uh, there's countless uh, advisors uh, from Western powers that would go on to fight in World War One, that were that watched the whole thing. To include like Blackjack Pershing, who would go on to command the AEF in Europe, right? Um, and yeah. all of it ignored because like they, uh, they most of them were with Japan because um, Japan actually treated their um, their advisors incredibly well. Um, like to the point that I believe it was Blackjack Pershing that complained that they wouldn't let him get close enough to the combat, because uh, like they didn't they they wanted they, they they had like suites set aside so he could watch battles from afar and like be attended to by a personal butler as he's watching people get hosed by a, uh, by like a Maxim machine gun or whatever. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and like throughout all of it, he took a lot of like their attacks, like because Japan, as we'll talk about, fully committed to frontal assaults over and over and over again. Um, and he remarked that their attacking was very, very stupid. Um, he also saw that like they used indirect fire for the first time, like using artillery and like call, calling it yeah. in on a phone, and said, "Well, that's not oh. how you're supposed to use artillery. That's ridiculous." So like, yeah, really? and and he he equated a lot of and not not just him, but there's countless other people. I believe uh, Douglas MacArthur was also there, um, or one of the MacArthur's. And they pretty much attributed all of Japan's setbacks that we will talk about to like, well, it's because they're, they don't have the fortitude of a white man. 
and like shit like that. Like they, uh, they literally races okay. them their way into no man's land in World War One. It's incredible. It's absolutely I incredible. Honestly, feel like they were watching these battles like how bros watch UFC fights. Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Or, or like, if oh, I shouldn't have done it that way. I should have done this, this, and that. If, or like your shitty uncle or something that's like, you know, those Brazilians are tricky. Like, oh, oh yeah, are they? <laughs> They're just naturally better Does at your the ground uncle and talk pound. About Brazilians, uh, you know. <laughs> Does, it, who do you know that? Oh, I've literally that? heard that. Yeah, and like especially in BJJ circles, like yeah, you. You gotta watch those Brazilians and the heel hooks. Where like, bro, I'm pretty sure anybody can do that. Like this, you, yeah. you, you've you've brought eugenics <laughs> into martial arts. Congratulations. Which is like pretty much what like uh, all of the advisors did. Like all the setbacks that Russia had. And this is it like because because what it came down to is, in order for them to accept that Russia is just being beaten, they would have to accept that a Asian military is beating what is considered a white European military, right. and they just couldn't square with that. So they like thought of every excuse they possibly could that were in- patently ridiculous. Um, and I mean, uh, to be fair, I don't think that this would have changed the course of World War One. But because like by the end of World War One, you see, well, not necessarily from, from the end, but after like the horrible uh, violence of the first two years. Um, you see like small unit tactics start to form. You see artillery barrages uh, start to form um, like indirect fire get uh, perfected and things like that. Like they literally saw it happen right. a decade before and nobody did wow. shit with it uh, because like, well, that won't, that insane. won't work in our civilized white armies. Like they Stupid. literally saw like what would happen. Uh, uh, like the British, especially they had tons of advisors there and they watched like the battle of Mukden, which we'll talk about uh, and, and other battles that the Japanese took part in where they're straight up using Western front tactics. Um, actually, I would argue that they're a little bit better than Western Front tactics using massive frontal assaults supported by artillery. Um, and, they're, and they saw exactly what would happen to them in a decade, and they completely disregarded it because they just thought that they were naturally better, which is am- amazing. Wow. Like millions of people. I mean, to be fair, World War One didn't have to happen. Your fucking empires can go fuck themselves. Uh, death to all the kings and all that. But like. It didn't have to look like the way it did. <laughs> no. Um, but. But you know what? We wouldn't have got the great movies like 1917. Uh, God damn it. I, I, Still on I that love train. my World War One walking simulators. Nick, thank you for joining me on part one. We will see everybody next week for part two. As always, part during dose. our series, we do not do a question from the Legion at the end of every episode. We will see you at the end of part whatever the fuck I said at the beginning. Don't quote me on it. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> you, it's supposed to be five. Yeah, probably five. We will do uh, quite a few uh, questions at the end of part five or or four. We'll see. Um, I'm not good at planning. But until next time, um, uh, don't listen to your cousin who also happens to be the German Kaiser. Later. <laughs> <laughs>